the Larry and Fishers podcast continue. My guest today is Kurt Christian. Kurt is the North of 96th reporter for the Indianapolis Business Journal, and I think we've had a chance to have all the previous North of 96th reporters uh, on our podcast. This is Kurt's uh, first appearance. Kurt, first of all, thanks for taking time out of a very busy schedule for to talk to me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I want to just talk about a number of things. First thing I'm going to ask is I'm trying to remember how long have you been on the North of 96th beat for IBJ? So, yeah, I started in mid-November, so just after uh, the transition that the previous North of 96 reporter, Sam Quinn, had made, I came in and really started to try to grapple this beast. Uh, I mean, we had a a five-county coverage region at my previous paper, but I've not been responsible for really sort of a tri-county area before. So since mid-November, I've I've been wrestling with it, and I still find myself trying to uh, drink from a firehouse. Yeah, that's a lot of activity, and I think the reason IBJ uh, carved this beat out years ago is because of the economic uh, boom of the north side, and and, uh, as a business journal, you certainly want to cover that. I want to talk about the one issue that I I would like to spend most of our time on today. It's a story you just published in the recent edition of the IBJ, and it's about the financing of State Road 37. I've been around since the beginning of this. You know, I've been blogging for about eight years. I I tried to back away from it and then all of a sudden we had COVID-19 we had race relations come up and you know as far as as hard as I try to get, go back and become retired again <laughs> events just pull me back and I have cut back a lot but I, I can't stay away from some of these issues and I'm so happy to see your publication uh, put so much work into this State Road 37 issue because I can remember when this was all proposed, uh, when the state of Indiana allowed the city of Fishers to, to basically run the operation of this this State Road 37 redo, uh, the, I remember the meeting with the county council uh, many years ago where it was uh, not absolutely certain the county council was going to approve its $12 million. And uh, it's a long story. But a deal was made uh, during a recess, and boom, there was a unanimous vote for it. When it was kind of almost unanimous, it might have been a couple of no votes, but it was it was uh, consensus that they uh, people in the county council wanted this done. Now that this construction has begun, you do a really nice deep dive about the financing. The 124 million dollars that was set aside to finance this, 100 million from the state, 12 million from the city, 12 million from the county. What we've seen, and I've followed this to some extent, but I really appreciate your deep dive into the facts and the research that you did. Let me just start with this. How did you and your editors decide you wanted to do a deep dive on this particular story? Sure. So really the thought in my mind, uh, and there were a couple of converging factors here, uh, the thought in my mind was we were due for an update on major road projects just for the fact that people were stuck at home. Uh, Everybody has been living with this project uh, since 2015. Uh, And we thought, you know, people aren't making their daily commutes. And we're really starting to see some of the the project take shape here with the first intersection being uh, sort of halfway done. And so we thought that'd be a good time to go in and look at things. At the same time, and, and I have to uh, uh, give credit to uh, Bill Smythe the, uh, of the 
uh, fiscal conservatives pack up there in Hamilton County. He's been uh, doggedly watching this uh, particular project for a while now. And so we'd had, we'd heard uh, the estimates were going to put us about $40 million beyond the initial budget. And that that's a number that raises eyebrows. Uh, it, when I used to work in Bloomington, we, we never had projects that went tens of millions of dollars over, but I've, I've seen several since coming up here. Um, so I'm finding that that's starting to be a bit of our wheelhouse. And so with those two factors, we decided to dive in and come to find out through really over the course of just a couple of days, uh, that $40 million figures already outdated and now we're closer to 47 million. Um, and that number could grow. Uh, I'm, I'm assured by those involved that it could wind up lower, but we thought uh, those two converging factors, you know, that price overrun and people being absent from the quarter, it was time to do an update. Yeah, and I and I when I looked at your story, I, I you centered in on exactly the issue I found when I did any reporting on this recently, that the city and the county looking at the finances of this issue they're working together supposedly on this but their financial views are quite different the city seems to be saying and they keep telling me this when i ever ask for a statement well you know it's we've got it's a big project we can find ways to save money uh these are engineers estimates we don't really know what the bids are going to be when they when they're let and the county, especially you, you uh, quoted uh, Christine Altman, a county commissioner, who said, I, you know, she doesn't think that there is much of a chance of, of cutting that much cost without changing the project. Just as an added personal note, I do not live very far from 141st Street and State Road 37. But that I, I uh, found out about that little proposal once I posted that on my blog. All heck broke loose, and my neighbors were. In and like asking me what in the world is going on at right in right out at 141st and State Road 37, and I think that as your story showed, it's since shown impractical for just technical and engineering reasons. But I want you to tell me a little bit about the disconnect or maybe the difference of opinion you found between the city and the county, who are supposed to be working together on this project. Sure, and uh, this is a little inside baseball, maybe, but. Um I had been given the green light to start reporting this story maybe at 3 p.m. on a Friday, and I was expected to have it all wrapped up and, and pretty by 5 p.m. the following Tuesday. So there's really about two and a half days to cover a what's now $171 million project involving three agencies. Uh, and so perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised to encounter so much confusion in that time, even really narrowing down those $47 million in overruns, attributing that to any given thing was, was sort of a task there at the beginning. But eventually we, in working with the county officials and city officials, uh, there we finally sort of narrowed it down and laid it at the foot of WSP, which is uh, a New York-based engineering firm that handled the uh, really the lion's share of the drainage project. Uh, and so uh, it took a little bit to not only narrow 
it down and attribute this overrun to that drainage project, but getting specific numbers was was a whole nother task. Uh, I think the, the most illustrative part of that maybe disconnect between the county and the city uh, might be best represented by what's happened since the June Hamilton County Commissioners and Hamilton County Council meeting. That's where they came out with a breakdown of that $42 million that they were going to need beyond the original estimate and how that was going to be split between the county and, and Fishers. And, uh, you know, here a month later when I'm trying to do this story, that's when I'm talking to these officials. They're still standing behind these $42 million figures. They're sort of guesstimating wh what went wrong and, and how much went it went wrong. Uh, and then just by matter of talking to the county first, I got to the city and found out that the overruns are much more than we had expected. So, so I think even nailing down this moving number of, of just how much more is going to be spent that, that's something that requires constant communication between these entities. And uh, as you saw in my article, some are, are more critical of that uh, constant communication than others. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. I, I don't think there's any surprise where the criticism's coming from uh, along those uh, fiscal conservative lines. Uh, but of course, I think that any taxpayer, any resident, anybody even impacted by this corridor should expect there to be that, that required conversation between those really three agencies. You're very uh, careful, but I can't believe you got this assignment Friday afternoon and got this done Tuesday. I can't, as a reporter who does it uh, not for a living anymore, that's uh, that's a pretty small timeline for a complicated story. But you really uh, nailed down about four different areas where the cost overruns happened. Uh, you, you show about, uh, very clearly how the land acquisition got complicated. There were a lot of court uh, rulings. I mean, the people who knew how to deal with the legal system, and they took that to the, to the nth degree, and that delayed things. But drainage is interesting because I was at some of the early meetings when this was all proposed, and what I remember, Kurt, is that a lot of people living on along 141st Street, just west of 37, said, hey, our yards are normally flooded with a little <laughs> rain. What you're proposing to do is just you know, take make a C out of it. And I think mm -hmm. that when that came to, to, to fruition and, and the engineers went and looked at the, uh, the situation, eyeballed, I think Jeff Hill was the city engineer at the time, uh, went out and looked at it and goes, oh, wow, we do have a problem here. And yes, this is going to be more complicated than we thought. So early on, I kind of got a feel that drainage was going to be a bigger problem than they thought. And you just... Uh, touched on that, but land acquisition, there are about four different areas that uh, Hatem Meki, the assistant uh, city uh, engineer, uh, the assistant in to the engineering department chief, has been involved with this project almost from the beginning. And he's probably the most, the biggest expert you'll find on that project. And he was pretty forthcoming on the, on, on the problem. So um, th do you think this was just a perfect storm of about four different issues coming to light? and ballooning that, that engineer's estimate? Well, uh, I think that it is possibly a perfect storm. Any time you see a project sort of across the board, because those four different issues 
just really run the gamut. I mean, it's utility relocations, it's right-of-way acquisitions, it's uh, materials costs, it's uh, those drainage costs. Um, I think that uh, anytime you see a confluence of overruns like that, you do need to start asking questions. And I, I think that this defense that the bids came in lower than we thought, the bids were during uh, part of the design stage that was so preliminary, we don't really feel that we can hold contractors to the estimates and, and we can't really seek a recourse. I mean, that, that's something we've heard on other projects. I, I'm most familiar with the Hotel Carmichael because that's one of the first projects that we've seen overruns like this since I started at the IBJ. And uh, I really think that this, this parallel here, this parallel experience to the capital costs with the Hotel Carmichael might prove out this concept that it, it's market influences. Um, we did a deep dive on what contributed to the Hotel Carmichael's overruns there. And, and I'm, not, I'm not ready to excuse either project yet and, and completely attribute it to those market influences. But there, there's strong evidence to show that there's a confluence of, of global factors at, at play here when you talk about skilled trade and uh, the number of contracts that the state had out during the time that Indiana 37 was pitched. Uh, and so I think that the perfect storm is, is maybe an apt description, but uh, as a journalist, I, I always love to get into the nitty gritty and, and I still think there's more to be parsed out. Um, cause even though WSP's, uh, estimates were, were, I think almost $17 million off base, uh, we're talking about a $47 million overrun. So even though it's, it's the main chunk, there's still plenty there to be investigated. Uh, and I want to go back to, um, what's maybe the most publicly discussed uh, aspect of this project and, and you highlighted Larry, which is that, that uh, consideration of a redesign of a particular interchange from around about to right in, right out. Uh, had Tim had said and, and sort of elevated that that was uh, an example of the attempted re redesigns that they've done to see how they might reel in these higher than expected costs uh, but as much as the county and, and all of those involved have tried to find a way to reel this project back in, it just seems to, to be resisting their every attempt because when it costs money to redesign that intersection, when you find out that the redesign would force another intersection to take on a higher capacity and therefore have to be expanded, you have to look at this as sort of a holistic project. And if you try to save costs in one place, it might cost you elsewhere. I think the, the, the quote you had in your story that really sort of highlighted the disconnect between city and county was Rick McKinney. Now, Rick McKinney lost uh, the last primary election, so he'll be on the county council to the end of this year. But he flat out said, well, if the county were in charge, we'd come in under budget. That was a clear shot at the city. Uh, you did mention in your story that there is a meeting that is being scheduled for, I think this month, is it this month now or next month, to try to sort this out because city and county officials have got to get on the same page at some point to figure out where to go next. Uh, 
Uh, any? Did you receive any indication of the people you talked to in your reporting as to where this might go, or is it still up in the air? So my understanding, and I believe I would attribute this to uh, Christina Altman, my understanding is the, the agreement between those agencies, the de facto expectation is that Hamilton County and Fishers are going to split those overruns 50-50. But um, uh, Commissioner Altman had said uh, that the county may request that Fishers take on even more of that. It was her hope that the county wouldn't have to put up as much money. Uh, and I don't, I, I, I can't take a guess as to how that'll go. I think the county for its conservatism has greater reserves that they might be able to participate in these and 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 shouldering the burden of these overruns. Uh, but a Fisher for to to foist more of that onto Fishers, that may be more of a bigger ask for the city because it, it doesn't have as big of overruns. And we've seen here in recent weeks even the uh, issuance of, of bonds to preserve the city's reserves during COVID-19. So the city's already trying to keep a watchful eye on that money. And I think that's going to be a big ask from the county to ask Fishers to take on even more of that. Yes, it's interesting that uh, Fishers does have decent cash reserves as cities go their size. But as you just mentioned, uh, uh, Scott Fadness used uh, a big, not a big chunk, but a sizable amount of that cash reserve to finance COVID-19 testing in the city. Anybody in Fishers at once a test can get one scheduled and the businesses can get a test for themselves and their employees. They pay for it, but it's available. And at the time, that was not always the case. And it's still a, a problem in some cases. Uh, so uh, you could see a situation where, for instance, and I'm just speculating a little bit here, where Fishers and trying to finance any overruns, we don't know how much it is yet, but we know this it's going to be some of that. I mean, you got that admission from all the parties. If you use some of your cash reserves, you take a hit for that. But the only other way to get get this finance for this overrun is to issue more bonds. And if you issue more bonds, the interest on those bonds will create the need for, in most cases, a tax increase. So uh, this, if the county can use their reserves at the city has to go issue new bonds, that's going to create quite a stir and, and quite a controversy. So do you think we're headed to, I mean, there's no way of knowing, but is there at least a possibility the city will, to some extent, have to issue new bonds to finance uh, the cost overruns on 37? Well, yeah, the, uh, the answers that I got from both city and county officials is that they are considering... Uh, funding those overruns in a tax-neutral manner. Um, Scott Fadness uh, specifically said that it w might be through the issuance of bonds, but I, uh, I don't think that we can expect them to, to be able to show their math just yet uh, since we're, we're so early in understanding how much of an overrun there's going to be. Um, but, but Mayor Fadness, yeah, he had, he had said he anticipates being able to issue bonds and remaining tax neutral. Uh, and so how he's going to, to do that, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't claim to have a, enough of an intimate understanding of the city's current finances to say how feasible those sorts of gymnastics might be at this point. 
but uh, it'll certainly be something that, that we want to cover and, and will be interesting here going into the future. Uh, at the county level, uh, Commissioner Altman had talked about uh, backing some bonds with their share of the uh, county's local income tax. And that was sort of the approach that, that she had suggested maybe the, the council take to avoid some tax increases. Um, but again, you know, people have their doubts about whether that's feasible. Uh, many think that a tax income or a, a tax raise is uh, headed our way as a result of this uh, project's overruns. And so it'll be uh, certainly, a, a, as it always is, a contentious proposal if, if that is what comes forward. Well, knowing Scott Fadness as I do, and I've known him for a while, I know two things about him. One, he's probably the most knowledgeable elected official I've ever met on local finance. He knows it well. He used to teach it at IUPUI at the master's level. So he understands the mechanisms of local finance. And I know he will be very hesitant to try to sell a tax increase for the cost overruns. And the county will have the same incentive. They don't want to raise taxes after promising that $124 million would uh, would, would pay the bill. Have you received much concern about the fact that the project has been uh, delayed, I think, one or two years. I can't remember the exact number, but it's, it was promised to be done at a certain date, and now it's going to be further out than we all thought. What have you received? Did you receive much comment or learn much in your reporting about that? So that was actually one of the um, assurances that I got from Mayor Fadness was by having a longer timeline, by having this project stretch out into 2023, that might allow for some more um, for for some more creative ways or more uh, space out payments on a uh, an overrun that might cost as much as uh, you know forty seven million between those two agencies. So they're looking at that as almost a, a saving grace. Um, I, I I don't know if. Actually, I, I feel confident saying drivers will not be happy uh, to look at extend, extending that construction timeline as a, as a saving grace. They, they probably see it as a reason to pull out yet another patch of hair. But uh, I think that, um, you know, sometimes that's just what you got to do. You, you've got to make the best of a situation uh, regardless of, of how it came about and some might prefer a tax increase. Some might prefer paying that out over time. Uh, you know, I, I count myself among one of those people who's going to be driving that stretch for, for years to come. Uh, and so I, I don't uh, know exactly yet whether I will, uh, I'll be happy one way or the other, but um, I know my, I've got friends in Noblesville and in that area who have been, uh, pestering me to to ask, well, when when is this part going to be done? When is the next part going to be done? So, 2023 is what they've got scheduled right now. Um, but you know, deadlines are meant to be broken, I guess. I'm sorry, yeah, you mentioned that because I don't have many patches of hair left to give. <laughs> At my age, but I and I live less than a mile from State Road 37, so this uh, this this is near and dear to my personal heart as well as being a public uh, issue. Uh, so I think what I'm hearing you say is that uh, you and the IBJ will be watching this carefully and there will be follow-up stories. You're going to be watching the developments as as, as this uh, continues to, to, to unfold before us. 
Yeah, that's that's the plan. Um, you know, I, I do my best as I uh, started our conversation with uh, ta- characterizing this job as drinking from a fire hose. Uh, Carmel and Fishers and, and each of these suburbs north of Indianapolis, they just have so much going on. And so we're going to do our best to follow this. Um, and luckily, because it is multiple agencies that are involved, maybe we'll be able to kill a, a few birds with one stone uh, with stories, future stories about this project. Yeah, and I, uh, I just want everybody to know that that's why you need local journalism is because of stories like Kurt on State Road 37 and your colleagues are doing great work on a number of other subjects. And just so everybody knows, I have just recently renewed my subscription to IBJ, and I would encourage everybody to uh, subscribe. And if you're up for renewal, make sure you renew that. The uh, You get in the mail the print product every week and if you get the right kind of subscription you can get regular coverage every day you have lots of great newsletters that come out every every weekday and uh, your uh, your web presence is has definitely become uh, solid so i would encourage people who have any interest in, in business and even politics you've done a good job in increasing your political coverage to subscribe to ibj this went pretty quickly, uh, a lot to say here, but I want to ask you one last thing, because the job you had previous to the IBJ was in Bloomington, Indiana. IBJ is a great example of one uh, publication that is locally owned, and you've got local owners that care about the community in which they live. We're seeing more and more corporate ownership uh, of of local newspapers. Indianapolis Star is an example, but the Bloomington paper is, too, where you worked. And they've gone through some tough times uh, uh, they've had a, They've let go an editor. They let go of a sports editor. Had been there for years and had won many awards. You worked there for a while. When you see things like that happen and things, bad things happen to journalists, you've gotten to know through working with them. It's got to be a bad feeling in general about about the business in which you make a living, and also uh, must be be tough to see your friends go through these these tough and difficult times. Yeah. Uh- to say it's demoralizing is maybe an understatement. Uh, there, while there is a lot of competition here, even in Indianapolis, and uh, in looking at the the different media outlets, uh, of course, you know we're we're working to to get a story before Indy Star. But when you see professional colleagues, you know people I haven't even met at the Indy Star yet, when you see them have to endure furloughs uh, during. Uh, what's really just sort of an an overwhelming year <laughs> with with the world coming to an end and all that. Uh, it, it just makes it all that much harder. And uh, I don't think anybody's quite figured out the equation yet for for how to how to fix news. Uh, I think newspapers gave it out for free for so long that it people may never come to terms with having to pay for it. And uh, that's the the only sustainable business model that papers have have found uh, for you know really their history uh, because more and more ads are getting eaten up that um, smaller papers like uh, the Herald Times, which is part of a, a Shures Communications based in South Bend up until around February of 2019. Um, that's how they get they get swallowed up by by bigger corporations like Gannett, which. Uh, now owns uh, the Herald Times and, and Hoosier Times papers, as well as, of course, the Indy Star. Um, so you're seeing sort of in a, these these big players come through, and it, it's 
quick to be a, a one or two player game. And, and uh, I think I, I'm really fortunate to be with the IBJ that, that still holds that private and local ownership. I mean, that, that's a, that's a bastion these days and an ever, ever shrinking faction within the greater media industry. And more often than not, one that, that gives you an advantage. I, having local ownership, having private ownership, not being beholden to stockholders. I mean, that, that's how you retain independence in journalism and how you can make on the ground decisions. Um, so it was a very intentional decision for me coming from the HT shortly after it. It was bought by uh, what was Gatehouse and is now Gannett. Uh, coming to this this privately owned paper, I, I think that's where the heart of journalism is, and uh, we're we're trying to find ways to make that heart stronger. Yeah, and I think local news is the challenge. That the the national publications are doing okay. You know, the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, which is you know part of the Gannett uh, Empire. We can find a way to make local news profitable. You, you hit it on the head. That's the key, and hopefully someone will find that magic elixir. Uh, Kurt, you've been very kind with your time today. I hope you we get a chance to speak again sometime soon. I appreciate the work you've done uh, covering local news in the northern suburbs of Indianapolis, including Fishers. So thanks for your time. Hope to speak to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me.